Good afternoon, and welcome to the Rothko Chapel's annual Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday celebration. I'm Ashley Klimmer, Director of Programs and Community Engagement. It is a great pleasure to be here with you today and to present this program as the first in the series, Songs for Justice, exploring the power of music and social ju justice movements. To promote the health and safety of our visitors, staff, and volunteers during the COVID-19 pandemic, we are presenting today's event virtually from inside the recently restored Rothko Chapel. We welcome you to come experience this transformative power of this space, the grounds, and to learn more about our history and work at the new Suzanne Deal Booth Visitor Welcome House, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Tuesday through Sunday. Since the Rothko Chapel opened its doors in 1971 in Houston, Texas, it has been an important pilgrimage site, welcoming visitors from all over the world seeking solace, respite, and renewal. For the past 50 years, it has served as a significant space to gather around urgent human rights issues of the day. And before there was a monument or street in Houston named after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the broken obelisk sculpture by Barnett Newman on the Rothko Chapel's plaza served as a dedication to Reverend Doctor's, Dr. King's life and living legacy, reminding us of our individual and shared responsibility to advocate for and uphold human rights and social justice for all. In 1979, the Rothko Chapel started this annual MLK birthday celebration as an opportunity to connect the contemporary implication of Reverend Dr. King's legacy to the ongoing struggle for civil and human rights. Every year, this important date becomes an opportunity to situate Dr. King's work and legacy within the urgent challenges and social actions of the day. Recent presenters have included civil rights freedom singer, Ruth May Harris, artist, David Banner, columnist Leonard Pitts Jr., environmental justice leader Dr. Robert Bullard, and scholar Kianga Yamada-Taylor. This year's program is the first in a five-part series titled Songs for Justice, exploring the role that music plays to further social justice movements. Today, we will experience and discuss the music from Reverend Dr. King's life and the U.S. Civil Rights Movement and the music found within contemporary social mobilization. To bring these ideas to life, we are honored to have with us today the Community Music Center of Houston, Scott Jomplin Chamber Orchestra, which is all right here behind me, Dr. Ann Lundy and Dr. Shauna L. Redmond, Scholar of Music, Race, and Politics. We will begin the program with a short address by Shauna Redmond, followed by a performance by the Scott Joplin Chamber Orchestra, some context and history presented by conductor Dr. Ann Lundy, and the program will conclude with a conversation moderated by Rothko Chapel's Executive Director, David Leslie. We invite you to follow along using the digital program, which is attached as a PDF in your event reminder email, and it's also linked on the Vimeo page or the Facebook live stream under the video player. During the conversation portion of the program, you are invited to send your questions to programs at rothcochapel.org, and David Leslie will do his best to weave those into the conversation. Closed captioning will be made available as part of the recorded version of this program on our website in the coming weeks. Before I give introductions, I would like to take a moment to recognize the National Endowment for the Arts for their generous support of this program and the Songs of Justice series. And thanks to all the donors supporting this program season. 
I would also like to extend a special thanks to my colleagues, Kelly Johnson, Will Davison, and to all the chapel staff and contractors who are making this experience possible today. Now, it is with great pleasure that I introduce and welcome the following presenters. Their full bios are available on our website and in the digital program. Community Music Center of Houston, formerly the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals, was founded in 1979. In 1983, the Scott Joplin Chamber Orchestra, a 40-member, predominantly black community orchestra, was formed in response to the lack of opportunity for black classically trained musicians in the world of symphony orchestras. Today, the Scott Joplin Chamber Orchestra is the nation's second oldest predominantly black chamber orchestra actively performing. Dr. Ann Lundy is the Community Music Center of Houston Music Director, conductor, violinist, educator, and ethnomusicologist. She lectures throughout the United States, has published articles on finding and performing music written by African-American composers, and was the first African-American woman to conduct the Houston Symphony at Miller Outdoor Theater in Houston, Texas. She founded and currently conducts the Scott Joplin Chamber Orchestra, the William Grant Still String Quartet, and teaches violin and viola. Dr. Shauna Redman is a scholar and author of Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora and Everything Man, the Form and Function of Paul Robeson, which received a 2021 American Book Award. She's written widely for public audiences, including the critical liner essay for the vinyl soundtrack release of Jordan Peele's film, Us. She is president-elect of the American Studies Association and professor of English and Comparative Literature and the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race at Columbia University. I will note that this is just a plug here that Shauna Redmond's book anthem is available for sale in the Rothko Chapel's Welcome House and on our online chapel shop. And last, serving as our moderator today is Rothko Chapel's Executive Director, David Leslie, who has devoted his career to religious and intercommunity engagement centered on issues related to peace, justice, social equity, interfaith relations, and human rights. Prior to joining the Rothko Chapel, Leslie served as Executive Director of Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon and Interfaith Ministries for Greater Houston. Please join me in extending a warm welcome to Community Music Center of Houston, Dr. Ann Lundy, Shauna Redman, and David Leslie. Thank you. Thank you to the leadership and staff at Rothko for the invitation to be here today. It's a pleasure to begin a relationship with the chapel and to join with Dr. Ann Lundy and the Scott Joplin Chamber Orchestra in celebration of the gone too soon radical humanitarian and anti-capitalist Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm here to briefly set a scene to provide some significantly abbreviated histories of how music is made powerful why it's powerful. You've already heard some of that in the music that played as you entered today's event, which is drawn from the anthem mixtape that accompanies my first book. I'm going to add to your listening experience by telling a tale of Dr. King's friend and co-conspirator, Nina Simone, who was a fighter and a troubadour in her own right for human rights 
from the height of the civil rights period in the United States through global black power and anti-colonial movements in Africa. She was a talented musician and tactician whose creations reveal the transformative potential of black dreaming and struggle. Music is a method. Beyond its many pleasures, music allows us to do and imagine things that may otherwise be unimaginable or seem impossible. It is more than sound. It is a complex system of meanings and ends that mediate our relationships to one another, to space, to our histories and historical moments. The movement of music, not simply in response to its rhythms, but toward collective action and new political modalities, is the central exposition of my first book, Anthem, which tracks the songs that organized the Black world in the 20th century. Throughout the African world, music functions as a method of rebellion, revolution, and future visions that disrupt and challenge the manufactured differences used to dismiss, detain, and destroy communities. The anthems developed and deployed by these communities, those songs recognizable as both musically and strategically sound, served as articulations of defense and were so powerful that they took flight and were adopted by others. Minoritized groups around the world have taken advantage of the special alchemy that musical production demands, including the language, organized noise, and performance practices that represent, define, and instruct the performers and the receivers of these musics. To hear Black anthems, whether live or on wax, is to be a part of the event itself. Singing and listening, therefore, involve pronounced political stakes within the anthemic event. This is at the center of my studies and my teaching, the fact that singing and listening involve pronounced political stakes. Black anthems construct an alternative constellation of citizenship, new imagined communities that challenge the we of the formal state yet install new definitions of we in its place. Exposed here as a fundamental tension within their construction and use, Black anthems replicate certain functions of state propaganda, albeit toward different ends and with different actors. They are the evidence of a long century of political thought and rebellion, allyship and compromise that has forever marked the struggles of aggrieved populations. As such, people's movements constantly call upon these songs as, politico -discursive, as a politico-discursive resource and performance of solidarity, often years and decades after their original use. For example, over the last two years, Lift Every Voice and Sing, the Black National Anthem and Hymn of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, written in 1899, has appeared in demonstrations all over the US in protest of police violence. The anthem therefore has a future, even if the nation does not. The great Nina Simone understood the power of music attached to community 
and its power in service of radical public intimacy, as her 1969 anthem, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, demonstrates. Written in homage to the woman who taught her to take revolution seriously, her recently deceased mentor and friend, playwright and activist Lorraine Hansberry, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black was a love letter, tribute, and a continuation of Hansberry's posthumously released play of the same name. Within their efforts to tell the stories of the African descended, both women reveal the systems that made the world in which they live. The despair that Hansberry represented in the stage play is gestured toward in the anthem, first in its slow, methodical accompaniment. It is not mournful, but manages to set a tone that encourages reflexivity through its melodic stillness, which incorporates moments of silence every couple of measures, a strategic pause in the composition during which the participating audience can reflect. Simone sings, to be young, gifted, and Black, followed by a two-beat pause. She follows the break by giving meaning to her previous statement, singing, oh, what a lovely, precious dream. Simone's use of the word dream is loaded with the history that it follows. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech at the Washington Monument, as well as the American Nightmare articulated by Malcolm X, battle for space within both the play and the anthem, as both men's beliefs are tested in practice. It was unclear in 1969 which vision would become reality. Simone's dream, however, also provides a necessary counterweight to the frightening present. It is aspirational and encourages the listener to grow, imploring them to open your heart to what I mean. To be ungifted in Black was an organizing text that acknowledged despair, but led the listener toward its alternative by drawing attention to the strengths that already existed within them. As she sung, when you're feeling real low, there's a great truth that you should know. When you're young, gifted, and Black, your soul's intact. Neither Hansberry's play nor Simone's anthem were content to wallow in the past or remain static in the present. In his review of the play, music journalist Nat Hentoff remarked, the kaleidoscopic fusion of autobiography, invention, intentions, doubts, and affirmation immersed my daughter and me not in a memorial, but in a thrust of spirit that kept us both for a while after we left silent and thinking about possibility. The possibility pondered by Hintoff and his daughter was the hoped-for response. Hansberry's three-part play invites these types of meditations and uses her body and experiences and those of the community around her as a platform from which they might be launched. Simone's nearly 10-minute conversion of the, of the play on Black Gold does a similar work. Recorded live in 1969 at the New York Philharmonic Hall, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black sings the praises of African people and becomes Simone's method for making her soul intact as she exercises her personal haunting on stage. The song is prefaced by comments for her muse Hansberry, whom Simone is confident the audience knows already. Of course you know who she is, she says and follows her resultant soft chuckle with dig that. 
Simone highlighted the play in her comments, telling the audience that it is being performed downtown as they sit in the Philharmonic Hall, thereby making an explicit link between the two pieces, while also honoring Hansberry's labor even after her untimely passing. Simone conjures Hansberry in that moment, saying that she comes alive more every day due to what is being written and said about her. Simone's keen awareness of loss in the wake of so much death led her to foreshadow the end of her song and performance, not because it will be any less powerful or necessary at a future date, but because, as she said, very soon now, say maybe four or five weeks, I won't be able to sing to be young, gifted, and Black anymore, for each time I do it, she comes a little closer, and I miss her a little bit more. Simone did not yet know that her song would be enshrined within a Black movement canon as an anthem. In that moment at the Philharmonic, she is able to relate to and imagine the song only by way of its muse. Through the composition of the anthem and its performance, Hansberry still lived and was ushered to her rightful place on stage next to Simone through her dedication. So for her, while she's here with us and she approves to be young, gifted, and Black. And with a scalar piano flourish, she was off. Simone's deep appreciation and love for Hansberry is witnessed in the song's composition, but it is through its performance that Simone draws the attention of her listening public back to the movements of Black people, who, she argued, need all of the inspiration and love they can get. Arguments for Black equality, like this one from the concert stage, evoked racially specific kinds of fear from her white audiences. During the rise of the Black power movement, Black artists worked diligently to own their spaces of performance and employed various techniques in order to make that possible. Simone took advantage of her performance platform by acknowledging racial divisions, but instead of exposing the white members of her audience, who were often in the majority, she draws attention to and brings closer the black members. As she said during the 1969 performance, to be young, gifted and black is not addressed primarily to white people, though it does not put you down in any way. It simply ignores you. She ends her introduction by provocatively requesting that her primarily white audience not buy her recently released RCA 45 saying, so since this house is full and there are 22 million blacks in this country, I only want 1 million to buy this record. You understand? To be ungifted and black resonated with black communities around the country and solidified Simone's status as icon. Her call to unify us and catalog of iconic Black freedom fighters named at the conclusion of the live performance, including Martin, Lorraine, and Langston, made the song a representative of the political cultures brewing in the wake of the 1968 urban uprisings that happened all over the country. The off-Broadway production of Hansberry's play from which the song was born, as well as the rise of Black power aesthetics, propelled Simone's, Simone's phrase into the mainstream, with one Black journalist reporting that it is so moving in its content 
that it ranks with Reverend Jesse Jackson's inspirational, I am somebody. The phrase catapulted the song into heavy rotation on black radio. In early January, 1970, to be young, gifted, and black was number three on the top 10 chart in the black newspaper, New York Amsterdam News. By the end of that month, it was number one, ahead of the Jackson 5 hit, I Want You Back. To be young, gifted, and black ultimately reached number eight on the National Rhythm and Blues charts and even cracked the pop chart at number 76. Its defiant and forthright announcement of black beauty and achievement alongside its popularity on the charts primed it for use by members of an increasingly international black power vanguard. In 1971, the increasingly militant civil rights organization, Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, which had 10 years earlier led the fight to end interstate segregation with the Freedom Rides, chose Nina Simone's To Be Young, Gifted, and Black as the Black National Anthem, unseating the original Negro National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, and highlighting Simone's standing within the protest traditions of the Black U.S. A major strength of the anthem is its ability to highlight, without any sense of melodrama, the importance of the next generation. Both the play and the anthem engage the future, although its utility lies less in its ability to signal time than practice. Simone and Hansberry both insist on a future, which was an urgent, hard-won position within the context of global assassinations and uprisings, the Cold War, and its attendant ravages in Vietnam. Their work exhibited a form of Afrofuturism concerned with what cultural critic Kodwo Eshun describes as the possibilities for intervention within the dimension of the predicted, the projected, the proleptic, the envisioned, the virtual, the anticipatory, and the future conditional. The to be that the title of the play and anthem announced was both the prospect of identity and its making, thereby condoning change and innovation. The future, which is as soon as tomorrow, is the space of opportunity and provides an organic focus for Simone's song that continues to be heard, covered, and sampled to this very day. Part of the mystery of Nina Simone is her inability to be categorized musically, which is reflective of her love for and capacious practice of a wide array of Black musical forms from blues to pop to jazz, all of it which she used in service of protecting her people. Raised the child of an evangelist and trained as a classical pianist, Simone knew well her histories, having learned the hymns and spirituals in order to accompany her mother's revival. This deep knowledge and attachment to song is not unique to musicians, even if we are all reliant on them. Non-musicians like King relied on the sounds for counsel, sustenance, and inspiration. His close relationship with the inimitable gospel star Mahalia Jackson, whose singing of Thomas Dorsey's Take My Hand, Precious Lord, fortified him at his weakest, most arduous moment, is only partial evidence of this fact. 
in order that we might hear more of this genealogy. The Scott Joplin Chamber Orchestra will now play another Jackson standard. Soon I will be done. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed our first selection. This is um, part of what's so important about the African-American experience, as my esteemed colleague, as Shannon was saying, about the importance of the black church traditions, the songs, the hymns, the spirituals, and how, how it binds us together and helps us move forward. That particular one, soon I will be done with the troubles of the world, while it is, um, in, in many ways, it expresses the pain and, and anguish that our enslaved ancestors were feeling, and yet they rejoiced in the fact that they were going to live with God, and that was something to, to celebrate. So this is part of what, I, I, this is part of why I love performing this song, 
because it has such beauty and, and yet it still talks about the, um, the pain and the suffering, you know, while we are, while we are moving forward in, in our, you know, in our quest for, um, for equality. I think I, um, should I say a little bit about Community Music Center also? Okay, our organization, Community Music Center of Houston. As I said, we were founded in 1979. Initially, um, I wasn't there at the very beginning, but we were about um, continuing to perform spirituals and to bring those traditions alive. I was um, one little black kid that grew up playing the violin, and a lot of times I was the one black kid in the orchestra, and as I got older, I started wondering if there could be other black folk playing orchestra music. And I looked around and I saw, oh, look at these beautiful people. Look at these talented, beautiful people. And so I was really excited. Uh, the Community Music Center gave, gave me a chance to bring the uh, string quartet that I had initially. It's called the William Grant Still String Quartet, named after the great black composer William Grant Still. And then we formed the orchestra, and that gave us a chance to um, again, get more instrumentalists, and, and we will bring up the vocalist also, in a way to perform music by black composers. And I just want to say, as somebody who has three degrees in music, I didn't learn anything about black composers at the universities. It was such a, um, I think that's something I'm hoping that they're starting to make those changes. And as much as I love Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms, uh, the great composers, I learned nothing about Scott Joplin. I learned nothing about William Grant Still and Florence Price and Margaret Bonds and those other wonderful composers who had also written beautiful music. So the next selection we're going to play is by a black woman composer. Um, Lena McLean, thank you, because I was about to say the wrong name. So that's why you got good people in the back. <laughs> Lena Johnson McLean. Um, she composed this piece um, in honor, of course, of Martin Luther King. And I remember that eons ago, I contacted her. I, was, I had purchased the, um, the vocal music, and I just contacted her. She's, she was in Chicago. She still is alive, thank goodness. Had she written anything for orchestra? And she told me then that she had orchestrated this piece but that people were not asking, orchestras were not asking her as a black woman to perform her piece. And when I contacted her, she was so great, she was so gracious, she sent me the parts, and that's in composer's manuscript, which is always great. And I, and I realized that there are other black composers that have written music for orchestra, um, and it's just not being performed. So that's really the main reason why we started the, the Scott Joplin Chamber Orchestra, because we wanted to perform this music, even though it may be new to many of us, it's, those of us that have played orchestras in our, in our lives, gave us a chance to really kind of get together and perform together. So I think with that in mind, I'm going to ask our, ask our um, vocalist to come forward as we get ready to perform our next grand piece. And this is by, well, vocalist, why don't you come on forward? I'll, talk a little bit longer while y'all are positioning yourselves. This is the piece by Lena Johnson McGlynn. Lena McGlynn is the niece of uh, Thomas Dorsey. Thomas Dorsey, precious Lord, take my hand. As you see, I'm not a vocalist, but it's, um, uh, he's, he's a great um, a composer also. He was a great composer. And I'm asking the, um, the vocalist to come forward. And we're going to be singing. This is a, a cantata and it is for our Scott Joplin singers. 
denominator that some call death and we've all done it and I as well have thought about my own death and my own funeral but I don't think about it in a morbid type sense and every now and then I ask myself what is it that I want said so I leave you with these words this morning if any of you are still around when I must meet my day, tell them I do not want a long funeral. If you find someone to deliver my eulogy, tell them not to speak long. Every now and then I wonder what it is I want them to say. Tell them not to mention my Nobel Peace Prize. That's not important. Tell them not to mention my 300 or 400 other awards, because that's not important. Tell them not what school I come from. I like to have somebody mention that that day that I, Martin Luther King Jr., gave my life trying to service others. I like somebody that day to say that day I, Martin Luther King Jr., tried to give love. I want someone to say that I tried to be right at the war question. I want someone to be able to say that I tried to feed the hungry. I want someone to be able to say that in my lifetime, I tried to close those who were naked. I want someone to be able to say that in my lifetime, I gave kindness. I want someone to say that I love and service humanity because that's what I do. Yes, I was a drum major. Say that I was a drum major of justice. Say that I was a drum major of peace. Say that I was a drum major of righteousness and all of the other things that are shallow will not matter. I have no money to leave behind. I have no luxurious and fine things to leave behind. But what I want to leave behind is my committed life. 
That is what I want to leave behind. That's all I want to say. If I can help someone as I pass along, if I can cheer someone up with a word or song, if I can show somebody they're traveling and wrong, then my living will not be in vain. If I can do my Christian duties, if I can bring salvation to a world once wrought, if I can teach the teachings that my master taught, then my living is not in vain. I want to say tonight that I too am happy I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed I wouldn't be around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in lunch counters and I knew that as they were sitting they were standing up for what was best in the American dream and taking this nation back to the great walls of democracy that our founding fathers dug deep in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't be around here in 1961 when we decided to ride for freedom and stopping segregation and interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't be around here in 1962 when Negroes in Albany, Georgia decided to straighten their back. And when men and women straighten their back, they are going somewhere because a man can only ride your back if you are bent over. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't be around here in 1963 when black people in Birmingham, Alabama aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had the chance later that year in August to tell America about a dream that I had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't be down in Selma, Alabama, witnessing a movement there. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't be in Memphis, seeing a community rally around those brothers and sisters who were suffering. I am so happy I did not sneeze. And I go into Memphis, and some people begin to talk about the threats or say the threats that some have given to me. What people are going to do some of my wicked white brothers. Well, I do not know what will happen now. We have some difficulties ahead, but I'm not concerned about that because I have been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind, just like anybody, I like to live a long life. Longevity is just right there in front of me, and I'm not concerned about it because I want to do God's will. And he has allowed me to go up to the mountaintop and I looked over and I seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as people will get to the promised land. I am so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I fear no other man because mine eyes have seen the coming glory of the Lord.
a dream today that my four children will be able to live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day in Alabama with vicious races with a governor whose lips are dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, that one day in Alabama that little black boys and little black girls will be able to join with little white boys and little white girls and walk together as brothers and sisters. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall become low, every crooked place becomes straight, every rough place becomes plain, and we see the glory of God and all flesh shall see it at once together. This is our hope. This is the faith I will take back to the South. With this faith, I will go out with you and I will carve a tunnel of hope into a mountain of despair. With this faith, I will go out with you and transform these janglings of discord of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand for freedom together and know that one day we will be free. This will be the day that all of God's children will be able to sing with the new meaning my country tis of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of pilgrims pride. From every mountain side let freedom ring. If America is to become a great nation, this must become true. So let Freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty, the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the snowy capped Rockies in Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from the stone mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from the lookout mountain in Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill in Mo Hill in Mississippi. And let freedom ring from every countryside. And when we let freedom ring from every hamlet, from every village, to every state, to every city, we will speed up the day that God's children, black and white, Jew and Gentile, Protestant and Catholic, will join hands and be able to sing in the Negro spiritual of old. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last.
I know this is on, is this on being broadcast, whatever, but I'm going to ask our two soloists to come forward and, and just, just acknowledge them. I'm not used to doing this without an audience, so forgive me if I, you know, mess up a little bit, but uh, I'm so excited to be performing for you guys live. Um, and that was one more from a classical social standpoint. Our next one I think is going to be a little more fun. We're going to invite our rapper, Craig Washington, to come forward. We're going to be performing from the movie Selma, the great tune uh, Glory. So this is our first time going so we have the orchestra and the rapper together. I hope you enjoy it. No man, no weapon, foreign against, yes, glory is destined. Every day, women and men become legends. Sins that go against our skin become blessings. The movement is a rhythm to us. Freedom is like religion to us. Justice is juxtaposition in us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough. One son died, the spirit is revisited us. True and living, living in us. Resistance is us. That's why Rosa sat on the bus. That's why we marched through Ferguson with our hands up. When it go down, we women and man up. They say stay down, and we stand up. Shots we on the ground, the camera panned up. King pointed to the mountaintop, and we ran up. Oh, one day, when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Oh, we will be sure we will be 
Salem is now for every man, woman, and child. Even Jesus got his crown in front of a crowd. They march with the torch. We gon' run with it now. Never look back. We to God hundreds of miles from dark roads. Heroes to become a hero. Facing the league of justice. His power was the people. Enemies lethal. A king became regal. Saw the face of Jim Crow under a bald eagle. The biggest weapon is to stay peaceful. We sing our music is the cuts that we bleed through. Somewhere in the dream we had an epiphany. Now we write the wrongs in history. No one can win the war individually. It takes the wisdom of the elders and young people's energy. Welcome to the story we call victory. The coming of the Lord, our eyes are seeing the glory. One day. Saturday afternoon, Houston, Texas. The only thing I gotta say is there's one good thing, Dr. Lundy, that we did not have attended a fair out on the plaza because the wind for those who aren't in Houston today is blowing like 25 to 40 miles an hour. It is windy. But it's windy in here too. See, I was just sitting there thinking, there's old, uh, it's really hard on me because I'm used to having people in here and with COVID, it's been some strange times, but today, Two, three things come to my mind. A, the Lord is in this house. The Spirit is in this house. And the people who came before are in this house. Now, we would normally be cheering and standing up and clapping. And I know orchestra folks, because a little bit of my family background, we've got a few of those folks in my lineage. They tend to be pretty staid on the surface. But we all need to give ourselves a big round of applause. And thanks to everybody, everybody. Wow, thank you all. <clears throat> you know, when Ashley did the introduction uh, this afternoon, she referenced 1979 and uh, uh, when we started the Martin Luther King program here at the chapel. And the chapel was dedicated in 1971. And I know the orchestra, some of the history follows pretty close there. And it is quite amazing. Uh, I don't know if when the founders imagined what might happen here, they knew the particulars. But what they did know is they knew the essence. They knew the values, the principles of pushing all of us to imagine something different than what was that day, what is today, and what might be tomorrow, and then making connections among people that helped move that along. So I think today was just right in the spirit of the, the conversation. 
And I want to make sure we're bringing uh, Dr. Redman into this because what we'd like to do now for the next few minutes is really engage in a conversation. And it's always very strange when we're here. Sean, I see you over there, but we're all connected. This makes sure, are you hearing us okay uh, up in New York? I hear you, yes. Excellent, excellent. So I, I want to open our conversation this afternoon, and why don't I start with uh, Dr. Redman, and then we'll, we'll make the circle around, is a little bit about your own personal journeys. Uh, I think of work so often as vocation, not as work, not as profession, but vocation, because vocation to me connotes something about uh, change, something about essence of who we are and what we want to accomplish. So really what I'd like to start is, uh, Dr. Rimm, if you could just tell us a little bit about how you came to your vocation and what is the, the kind of people or principles, uh, the things that you build upon or built upon in your life that got you to kind of where you are today? Thank you. That's a great question. I just want to add my applause to the chorus of, of thanks and congratulations to all of the musicians. That was stunning. So thank you so much. Um, you know, I think the distinction between a job and a vocation or a job and work is a really important one because I think about my work in Black music study as something that I work on, but also something that works on me. And it's an important exchange and kineticism that continues to draw me into study and practice and um, extend me in ways that have been really, really significant for the type of thinker and person that I've become. Um, so, you know, I was uh, a child growing up working class in the Midwest and needed a friend and music became that for me and continues to be a friend for me and as i got older and more mature and started to understand some of the circumstances of my life which included an incarcerated parent which included a disabled parent which included a family that was full of service workers of people who were struggling to make ends meet it was really important for me to know more, to be able to articulate how I fit in the world and why it was important that I came from the places from which I came. And in college, a lot of this was revealed to me, right? By doing the study, by doing the reading, but very importantly, by doing the listening, by listening to MCs, listening to composers. It's you know, very much resonates with me what Dr. Lundy said earlier about not having been shown herself in college. That was very much my experience of being a music major, was that I was not hearing about Black composers. I was not hearing about Black empresarios, conductors, all of these people who I knew had to exist somewhere. And so for my senior recital as a vocalist, I did a program of only Black composers and had to do it on my own. And that was the commitment that I still carry with me in doing the work of studying how music has been and continues to be political speech and affirmation for African descended peoples. This is how we know ourselves because we can hear it in the music. We can live through it, whether we create it, whether we perform it or not. We are living through the evidence of other people having struggled and having persevered. And it's a really important resource and one that I still hold very, very close all of these years later. 
Thank you for that. And Dr. Lundy, what about the same, same question? Well, I don't know if I'm answering this question correctly, but one of the things about me that's a little odd is that I'm a, a black woman from Houston that conducts orchestras. That's kind of odd. <laughs> but it's one of those things where when I was a little girl, I was given a chance to kind of wave my hands around in front of other children. And I just loved it. I mean, it was, for some people, I know when we take conducting class, some people are terrified. I was like, I want to do it. Can I do it next? Can I do it one more time? You know, I just loved it from the beginning. And then when I, again, when I started finding other black folk that had violins and oboes and cellos and double bass and those kinds of things, I was like, this is it. I'm in heaven. I mean, it was, I love that orchestra so much. I really, really do. And don't, don't tell them, because sometimes I fuss at them because they didn't come to rehearsal on time. But <laughs> I love them so much because they give up their time and their talents uh, to, to bring this music alive. Mm. And as Shauna was saying, we don't learn this information in college. We just, I mean, I remember there was, I think there was one sentence about William Grant still in, in my music history book. And I, I was just thinking, I know there are other conductors. I know, I know there are the composers, rather. Where are they? Mm. So it was really just reading the books on your own. So I would say that's the one thing about any university teaching is that one of the big things I think I learned from universities is to read on your own. You know, mm. find mm. books, find scholars, find centers, Center for Black Music Research in Chicago, find libraries, find uh, collectors that are actually doing this and you will find that there's a lot of music out there. Right. There aren't just a few pieces by black composers. There's thousands, thousands of people, pieces by black composers, but you have to look. Mm. You have to really look for it. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's so important. That, uh, you gotta be able to see yourself in things. And if, if you don't see yourself, how do you then connect? And then how does the next generation, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And I think that uh, that's very, very, very important. And I think particularly today for young people, uh, as, as young people are looking, what's my future? Where am I gonna be? And if I can't see myself, mm -hmm. then it closes the door. And you all are really helping to open the door of imagination, creativity, but again, seeing myself through others. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's fantastic. I wanna shift the conversation just a little bit. I grew up in the church, and uh, so I'd hear these songs and I'd think of them uh, being for something, for somebody, for an occasion. As I got older, I started doing my own reading, and I found out, you know, a song can have double meaning. All right, so I'm going to give you my own personal example. There's a song called Lord of the Dance. Maybe some of you all know that simple gifts. It mm -hmm. emanates from the Shakers, mm -hmm. early, very simple song. When I heard Lord of the Dance, I thought that was around Easter, okay, the resurrection for those who uh, you might want to look it up. Because I had interest in the Northern Irish uh, conflict as a young boy, I always thought it was very disturbing. How could people fight each other over religion? I mean, it's a, it's a very simple question with a very long answer. <laughs> what I came to find out through some of my own reading and research is that, uh, particularly for Catholics on that side of the Troubles in those days, Lord of the Dance also had a revolutionary component to it, a message. Because as uh, the resurrection, it's not just about the... It's the knocking off the bondage, ending the bondage of British imperialism in Northern Ireland. So suddenly that song, it reminded me, had double meaning. It had a different meaning and very intentionally a different purpose. Does that make sense? Because it was used in different ways. I really open that up to both of you 
to, uh, to think about, are you know, there songs that come to your mind that have kind of that double, double meaning and might be used very differently depending on the audience and the outcome that you want? I could throw it open to either. I'll start with Dr. Lundy this time, and then uh, Dr. Redmond, we'll sure. move over to you. How does that sound? Sounds good. I, one of the more obvious ones would be something like Wade in the Water, an old, mm -hmm. an old spiritual or whatever. Of course, that was used as a song of worship, but it was also very much used as part of the Underground Railroad, a way to let uh, the enslaved ancestors know that this, this was what we were going, they, they might use the water as an escape route or something like that. Is that about right, Shauna? Yes, absolutely. And, um, and, and some of the other songs, too. I can't, at the moment, I can't think of it. The rest of my brain is kind of fried after the show. But um, there have been, been many songs that, of course, have, have, have different meanings. They, you know, uh, worship songs, but they're also, uh, as, as you said earlier, and I really love the way you said that, talking about the protest songs, and Nina Simone, mm -hmm. oh, my favorite. Oh, I love my favorite. Um, that the songs and Young, Gifted, and Black, man, I just couldn't sing that song enough. I'm not a great singer, but I sang it all the time because <laughs> well, it just represented so many things because when you're growing up and, you know, maturing, I'm, I'll, old, I'll be old enough to say maturing in the 60s and 70s that um, you're, you're trying to find your way and you're, you're thinking, okay, I don't look like the models in Vogue and I don't look like the models in the teen magazines or whatever. Uh, my hips are a little wider and my skin's a little dark and those kinds of things. But songs like that, to be young, gifted, and black, oh, hmm. it just, it, it made me feel, make me feel good about myself. What do you, what comes to mind for you, Absolutely. Doctor? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think similar to Wade in the Water, a song like Follow the Drinking Gourd, right, which is ostensibly about the material artifact of the gourd that people would use to drink water and other kinds of beverages on plantations, but was really about a star's constellation as a means of finding the North Star, that these songs were actually maps for freedom, maps for escape, maps toward fugitivity for enslaved peoples, right? One of the other songs in the more present tense, 20th century that comes to mind is by Paul Robeson, who's someone I adore and have written quite a bit about his song, Old Man River, right? Which was originally a song included in the musical Showboat written by Oscar Hammerstein and Jerome Kern, but through his practice, his performance of, of it for 40 years, he made it something entirely different. He changed the words, he would sing it on construction sites and at the loading docks in Oakland and on the picket lines in St. Louis and on the jetways in Berlin, right? That he made this song mean something completely different for people who were living in struggle. And that was his mission. And this is really a nod to both the composers who can change these songs or who have conceived of these songs as capacious freedom songs, but it is also about the importance of the performer and what the performer can take from an already existing song and transform it, making make it something completely different that can be used by people who desperately need those things, who need to be able to look in the mirror as to be young, gifted, and Black did with Nina Simone and say, I'm important, I matter, I'm significant, and I can actually change my circumstances. Anything to add? Um, 
I mean, just kind of an amen on that one because it's it's you know it's it's what we do. We we as as African Americans, we use music in so many ways. You know, uh, it ranged from work songs to just kind of break the monotony of, of the work. But, and then of course it's worship songs and then it's love songs as we would, you know, bond with our significant other and, and you know, all kinds of children's songs that we would sing to our, sing to our little ones to help them, you know, mm -hmm. go to sleep. And those things have just so much a part of our existence. Songs, as we said, songs of freedom, songs of justice, right. songs of, songs of, of, of life. Lo songs of life. Yeah, both, I know both of you all are scholars, and you've reminded me, uh, I just had this moment of all the choir teachers I used to have and directors, <laughs> and they would always say, before we sing a word, and then I'd always go, oh, no. <laughs> but they were so right. Learn, read, learn the background of the songs that you're going to sing, mm -hmm. because it starts to open up uh, a whole world to creativity and where they emanate from, and and messages within messages. So thank you for that reminder. Mm -hmm. I do want to remind folks that might be listening, uh, if you have a question, uh, feel free to email it to programs at uh, rothcochapel.org, and we'll try to weave it into the conversation. I do have one that came in. Okay. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll do this back and forth, but we're going to start with you, Dr. Lundy, because okay. it was directed to you. Okay. What is, or better yet, who is your muse? Oh, muse. Uh, let me think. Um, I don't know if I have one muse or whatever. I, I was blessed to be part of a supportive family. And, uh, you know, uh, my mom died just last year, but I remember her taking me to violin lessons over and over and over, <laughs> taking me to orchestra rehearsals. By the time I was in high school, I was playing in four different orchestras. And, you know, I don't know if muse is the word, it's more like she was, she was the one that, that took me to all those lessons. And I always try to get parents, I know we're all busy, but if you take that time to take the kids to their piano lessons, their violin lessons, their cello lessons, their trumpet lessons or whatever, you will have such a lasting bond with your child in ways that, that you may not be able to see it now, you know, because we had some of the most important conversations in our lives in the car, going to rehearsal, going to music lessons, you know? So I suppose that would be uh, my family. My family's amused. My husband, he's deceased now, but he was a, a bass player and I oh, mm -hmm. lived and missed him so much. But um, he taught me so much about bass and, and the wonderful things that, that the big bass can do. And then I'm, you know, I kind of switched over from violin to viola and, and then the cello. and. I don't know, the string family I know, the, I know so well, but the, the winds and the brass and the percussion, they all inspire me. Mm -hmm. How about you, uh, what, uh, Dr. Rim, what, what, what is, uh, who's your muse, or maybe it's plural even? It's always plural, of course. Um, there are so many people whom I rely on in doing the work that I do and being the kind of person that I aspire to be. Um, so there's a long list and I would hate to leave anyone off. So I will just say that today, right now, the most important person for me is actually my child. And this is where I can feel kind of the energies of Nina Simone's to be young, gifted and black kind of reflecting back into her household at the time at which she wrote that song, her daughter was four or five years old and those types of overtures, those kinds of offerings 
to our children and to people for whom we care, right? This is not just being a parent, but it is about being a caretaker for people and identifying with and being vulnerable with people around you. And so today, as yesterday and likely as tomorrow, it's my child for whom I do all things. Thank you for sharing that. I it always comes down to family. I think we all just, it's always about our family. And it's, sometimes it's a small family, sometimes it's a larger, more human family, but it's, it's always family to me. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I was thinking about with our own children, we have three boys in their 30, early, early 30s to mid to late 20s now, but uh, all of them were in music. And it, and it was something we always said to them that, um, you may not become professional, yeah. but you will never, ever have that taken away from you. Absolutely. It's something you can appreciate, grow, mm -hmm. and learn from. Mm -hmm. And I think you've ex both of you are sharing that uh, today. I, I, uh, maybe a little different direction. Um, again, kind of coming back to the introduction of the sh program today and then uh, kind of the context for this. We, uh, here at the chapel, we have this very unique relationship between uh, this sanctuary that we're in with Mark Rothko's uh, 14 monochromatic paintings uh, that surround this, uh, this, this space, which is oftentimes um, kind of brought to light through individual meditation. People come from literally all over the world to come and just have space to be. I mean, very often do you get that invitation, come as you are, use the space as you, you need at that day. But then when you walk out the door, you're just faced with Barnett Newman, who was another contemporary modern artist of uh, Mark Rothko, this wonderful piece called The Broken Obelisk that was built in the 60s, and you all gave context to music and word to what was going on in the 60s. Uh, you have Vietnam War, you've got a lot of conflict happening, and a dedication marker to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. What a lot of people don't know about that piece is that John and Dominique de Manil, who were the patrons founders of the chapel, were going to gift the broken obelisk to the city of Houston. It was going to be matched with a grant from the city and a national uh, endowment type uh, grant. And they only had one stipulation, that the, that the sculpture would be dedicated to the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, who had just been assassinated. So this is in 68, 69, and the city of Houston wanted the sculpture, but they did not want the dedication. Hmm. So the demon ill said, okay, then you're not getting the sculpture. <laughs> and so it sat in the yard, and as this, uh, the foundry, as the chapel was really towards the end of its development, it just became a natural companion piece to what was happening here inside the chapel. So when you leave here, you're, you're faced with this obelisk, but as we said in the opening, left and led the le legacy, living legacy, to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. For both of you, if you had to say what is important in that living legacy of Dr. King that we should be aware of today, that we should be focused on and maybe <laughs> dedicated on to? Hmm. That's, a, that's a big question. Um, one of the things that um, that from one of the speeches that, that was done today, the, the middle one where he said, if I was a drum major, I was a drum major for justice. I was a drum major for peace. And that's, that's one of the things that's always stayed with me is that 
you can, wherever you are in your life, you don't have to be rich or famous or powerful or anything. You can be involved in uh, promoting justice for all and promoting peace in this world that we live in. You can do these things. We can all do those things. You know, some of us can do grand things. Some of us can do small things. Whatever, whatever you can do, you know, that, that would be something that, that stays with me regarding King because most of the time, they were just regular people marching. I know we kind of put King and all the marchers on a, on a pedestal, but they were really just just working people that were trying to um, trying to go in their daily lives uh, and, and make them better for their children, which is, I think, what everybody does. We all want to leave the world a little better for our children. I think that's as as Shauna was saying. That's that's what that's what we're here for. So that that that's what pops into my head in terms of um, whatever it is we can do. You know. Please mm -hmm. do it. The legacy that we're left with, the challenge we're left with. Absolutely. Dr. Ribbon? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that are really interconnected in my mind. And sometimes I'm hesitant to use words like service or love, because I think quite often in public conversation, those words get really flattened and two-dimensional. When someone like King models robustly that these are three-dimensional efforts, to live a life of service is not simply one where you go stand and serve at a shelter as wonderful and important as that is. This is a worldview. It's a way of being in your body, being in your family, being in your community in ways that are meant to be a challenge. These are not easy requests that we are putting on one another to be considerate, to be kind, to be loving. All of these things that are very much interrelated to me in thinking about how one begins to approach the life of someone like Martin Luther King Jr., whose political compass, while still very clear and coherent, changed over the course of his lifetime, right? Kianga Yamada Taylor, who I know you've had to the chapel, has a piece in the Paris Review talking about his move toward an anti-capitalist position, that he actually recognized that there were things that would never be gained from a civil rights agenda. So we have to actually pay attention to class. We have to care for the poor. We have to cater to the sick. All of these things that in the context of war feel that much more urgent and that he was moving towards very robustly at the end of his life when he was taken too soon. And I do think the question for me was related to your earlier question about Psalms and their multiple purposes. I just want us to settle into this day or Monday, in fact, which is the holiday, right, for MLK's birthday and recognize that it was not freely given. That to have a Martin Luther King Day was a struggle. It was a fight. And that musicians played a significant role in actually pushing the federal government to make MLK's birthday a national holiday. Primary amongst them, perhaps Stevie Wonder, who wrote Happy Birthday in celebration of Martin Luther King as a means of pushing the public discourse, the public conversation around the need for a national holiday to commemorate him. He used his song to push towards that federal legislation. And we see that song now used in Black households and communities every single day, that that is the new happy birthday for many Black families and communities. So I think the, the kind of 
opportunities that we have present to us now in thinking about living a life that might begin towards that lived by some of our idols, our mentors, our icons, should really also grapple with, well, what did it take for us to know this person? And do we know this person fully? I think one of the things that he most modeled in that change in his political course for me was an incredible curiosity. And that's something that I think we all need to strive towards. Do we know enough to do the work that we're called to do? And to live a life of study is central to being able to live a life of change. Thank you all for that. We're going to move to our closing number. I wish we could keep the conversation going for all afternoon, evening. That'd be great. But I know there are other things to do. Uh, what I do want to do is just in, before I go to my closing remarks, just to say one, one, one thing I wanted to say is that you both have reminded me that the world in which we lived in, things are so fragile. You know, Dr. King's drawing on millennia old concepts, right, making them contemporary, and then allowing us to take that as uh, we heard in the sermon today, the speech today, that we keep that moving. The song keeps us mindful of uh, the need to keep that conversation, that song going generation after generation. So thanks for that. Um, before we conclude this afternoon's program with one final number, again, on behalf of the Rothko Chapel, I want to thank you, Shauna Redman, and Lundy. I want to thank the orchestra. I really want to thank the choir and everybody who's just been uh, making this afternoon so wonderful. And for you who joined us today, thank you so much for being part of the uh, 2022 Martin Luther King birthday observance. Um, this program, just so you know, is being recorded and be available for viewing on both our website and our Vimeo page. And I also will add my thanks to everyone who helped put today's event together, our tech crew, our program staff, underwriters. And one thing I would like you to do if you have the time this afternoon is to watch through the closing credits because you'll be an opportunity to really see the archives of all the programs that we've done uh, since 1979 and the issues that we've met uh, uh, head on through this uh, transformational program. And finally, I want to let you know that our Songs for Justice series will continue next month on February 19th and 20th with the world premiere of Monochromatic Light, Afterlife, by composer, jazz musician, Taishan Sori, that we co-commissioned with the Camera celebrating the chapel's 50th anniversary. For more information and to register for all of the upcoming programs, uh, please visit rothkochapel.org. Before we close, just two closing words. Uh, I'm gonna start first with uh, uh, Dr. Lundy. Uh, just a quick remark about the final song, We Shall Overcome. All right, thank you. Um, this, of course, is probably the premier um, civil rights song, and I think probably everybody knows it. So I'm going to invite you in the audience to sing wherever you are, okay? When I perform this live, usually we would ask the audience to stand and sing with us, to cross arms the way we've seen so many of the pictures of Dr. King and some of the other people. Uh, COVID has changed our reality. So if you would stand if you're able or sit if you're comfortable, uh, sing We Shall Overcome. We're going to sing it three times. We shall overcome. Our second verse is We Shall Not Be Moved. Is that it? 
We'll walk hand in hand. Thank you. We shall overcome. We'll walk hand in hand, okay? And then we shall overcome. So we're going to sing it. Um, going to sing it three times. I would invite you again, if you feel inclined, to join in with us, to sing with us wherever you may be. And then one, one thing, if Dr. Redman is still on, uh, one thing we wanted to ask her was just to see in her research if she happened to discover something about something that may be well known, but there may be some aspect of this song and where it emanated from that we may not know. So, Dr. Redman? We Shall Overcome comes from a labor strike in 1945 and 46 in Charleston, South Carolina. It was a tobacco strike that was overwhelmingly led by black women. And these are the folks, the unnamed people who are not on the copyright of the song, are not named in the histories of it, who are due the glory and respect of having brought to the world the iconic, the momentous, we shall overcome.
Yeah. 